This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by an opera superstar, mezzo-soprano Susan Graham, who, in addition to her appearance later this season in L.A. Opera's production of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, is also the artistic advisor for the Domingo Colburn-Stein Young Artist Program here at L.A. Opera. I want them to know that I'm their biggest cheerleader. I think I'm very empathetic in that I can feel what's happening while they're singing so I can address it and I can feel when they're tentative and I can feel when they're not breathing and I can feel when they're holding back and I want to give them the freedom to be able to fly. Susan Graham and I will talk about her own experiences as a young artist and some key moments from the beginning of her career. She'll give us insight into her approach to coaching and mentoring young singers, and we'll explore some of the unique strengths and challenges that the current generation of young singers encounter as they're coming up. My conversation with Susan Graham is next. The Young Artist Program here at Los Angeles Opera is just a wonderfully unique program. Um, I was speaking with Josh Winograde uh, a few moments ago, and, and he was saying, you know, you really are able to customize what you do for each individual in the program. It's true, and that's that's sort of part of our our mission statement, or at least my, my per- I, you know, I came into this program never having been a part of a Young Artist mm-hmm. Program as an administrator or as a teacher. And as a singer, as a young performer, I was in the Marilla Opera Program. And that's the only young artist program I did. Now, these, It's the San Francisco Opera. Yes, yes, the San Francisco Opera. And it was just a summer program. So I'm kind of starting all this with a blank canvas, which actually is how I've sort of approached my whole career. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm figuring it out as I go along and sort of imposing my natural instincts on what wants to happen with them collectively as a group, but more importantly, as individuals. As Josh said to you, you know, we, we're sort of tailoring it, tailoring each interaction with each individual young artist. Mm-hmm. But do you go back to your experience as a young artist? Do you draw from any of your personal experiences in what you're creating here? Or do you even avoid experiences that, that you had and, and really try to create your own thing? I don't really reference my experience as a young singer. I am coming from the present, where I am now, and how to help them on a path that will have the kind of longevity that I've been very lucky to have. Having been in this profession for 30 years now, I have a lot of experience, <laughs> both good and bad, <laughs> mostly good, I'm happy to say, uh, and build themselves as 
the kind of artist who has something to say, which to my understanding is why I was hired because I've always, I've been perceived certainly by the administration of the Los Angeles opera as someone who has something to say and has found ways throughout my career to, to express whatever it is that, that the music or the character or whatever demands. And that's, that's really, that's really my goal with each one of them is to bring them to the next level of forgetting about what's right and wrong, hmm. but finding what it is they want to say about something and figuring out how to say that. That's, I mean, that's it, right? That's I mean, it. That's like, in a nutshell. Yeah. Because <laughs> you could have the nicest voice and sing all the right notes and, and everything sounds good, but if, you know, there's nothing behind that, then then what are you? Well, that's that's actually what I have said to each one of them, collectively and individually. You know, you can have the greatest voice in the world, and after three minutes, I don't care. Hmm. Because you, you know... We we talk about people whose voices are so great they could read the phone book and it'd be fine. And, and you know, that's true. Those are kind of one in a lifetime. Okay, Pavarotti. <laughs> I'd listen to him read the phone book. <laughs> but, you know, for all the rest of us, we we need to find a way to to organically and honestly inhabit our art. What is that journey like? How do you um, discover that? Uh, how did you discover that for yourself as a young artist and then um, through your career? And then how do you help others discover that in them? Well, that's that's the million-dollar question, you know. Um, any teacher will tell you that they can they can talk a blue streak and try to explain and explain, and some people will get it and some people won't. Then you have to find other ways to try and talk about it or try and express it. For me, I always had a lot to say, and it took me a while to to find the confidence to say it. And I fully understand that as young artists, I mean, a lot of these guys are 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 just out of conservatory or university, you know, and they're they've been steeped in academia, which is a lot about this is right and this is wrong and you can't do that and oh you must do this so they're second guessing themselves at every turn and trying to be proper and with with the right vocal technique and with the right sound and with the right balance and yes all of that is extremely important and that's what we spend a lot of our beginning years working on that being said i let them work on that with sort of other people my job is to break down right and wrong. I mean, that's my my mission. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me that was my job. That's just what I decided. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a rule breaker. And my husband will tell you that. <laughs> For me, no is just a starting point. <laughs> Gets now, the conversation going. Now it's true. Confessions time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I like to find ways around uh, what might be the rule book. I mean, I just finished a project in the Opera Theater of St. Louis of Regina, and I had to break every rule I knew in order to play that character. Every vocal good taste rule. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of belting. There's a lot of hollering. There's a lot of screaming a high C. There's a lot of talking, spoken dialogue. You know, and it and at a certain point, you got to throw the rule book out, 
Now, after the rule book is fully um, entrenched in your DNA and you know how to sing and you know how to stand and you know how to walk on the stage, then, then we start adding all the other stuff, which is throwing the rule book out and figuring out what the character is demanding. But you have to have the rule book first yes, in order sure. to throw it out. Yes, yes, you do. Yeah. You do. You, you have to know how to drive a car before you can, you know, break the speed limit. <laughs> I'm not advocating breaking the speed limit, but, you know, there's time and place. Um, but, yeah, so, so for me, admittedly, that was a long process. Mm. It, it took, you know, it took a lot of just hard work and showing up and doing what di- directors and conductors demanded of me. Even if it was out of my comfort zone, I would give it 100% and and try to accomplish what they were doing. And in those first 10 or 12 years of my career, what I didn't realize was happening is that I was building my own store of those resources, of that of that pushing beyond what's comfortable, of getting my hands to do not a stock gesture, but a meaningful gesture, getting my body to find shapes that are interesting and and communicative. I mean, I in those first years, I was working a lot in Europe with European directors in the 90s who were just sort of discovering Regie Theater, which is, you know, where, where the director calls all the shots, even if it goes against the music. And I was, you know, I was doing a lot of that stuff. And I was, you know, having to sing high-flying arias lying on the floor with my head hanging over the front of the stage <laughs> and, you know, dangling from a balcony with one arm. I, I did all these things that broke down any barriers I ever had, you know, inhibitions of, I have to stand still and hold my torso just in a certain way so that I can breathe and be relaxed. No, hmm. yeah. the theater is a lot more than that. Right. You have to find ways around that so that you can still have proper posture and proper breathing and proper vocal production. But it starts between your ears. Hmm. It starts with a mindset. And I've, for instance, I've played so many trouser roles. You know, I've, I've portrayed a young man on stage for a large part of my career. And... As I tell some of my mezzos who are in that same path, it's not about, for instance, oh, thinking I'm a boy. It's a mindset of youth. And once you get into that, your body does things that you're not even aware of. If you let it, if you allow yourself to go that far, you know, your, your feet start hitting the ground in a different in a different rhythm and you you're not a female who has swingy hips you're a man who has locked hips and but you don't even think about it in that way it just becomes a mindset and you're picturing how you want to be and you're inhabiting that image those are the kinds of things that I'm that I'm wanting to introduce to them physical things vocal things most of all musical ideas because I've I started out as a pianist from age six. I was playing the piano. I learned a lot about phrasing and musicality so that by the time I was in high school, it was just another language to me. It was like speaking English. Musicality came so naturally to me. And and I have held on to that, certainly throughout my singing career. It's helped me so much in shaping phrases and finding the beauty in a phrase and daring to go pianissimo here. And I mean, I've made a career out of high pianissimos. It's my only party trick. <laughs> I'm the mezzo with no low notes, so I have to do something else. But 
you know, those kind those kinds of musical daring opportunities so that it means something and you're not just singing notes on a page in a rhythm. Mm-hmm. I push them and I I make them dig deeper. And that's fun. Right. It's fun for me and it's fun for them. And it's so important too. Um you know, in in this art form that has so much history and tradition and stars who did it a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, for anyone who grew up listening to whoever sing this moment, you know, your initial thought, I would imagine, is, you know, mimicry. But you have to then let go and let the inspiration just be, you know, oh, that that the way that Pavarotti sang that line was great, but I have to do it my way. Because Pavarotti found that right. himself, you know. And it's his. It's his. <laughs> and, you know, if you listen to Maria Callas or Renata Tabaldi or Montserrat Caballé or any of those, you know, recording artists who were generations before, certainly many generations before the the young artists we have now, they're listening to, you know, Renee Fleming and Barbara Bonnie and Thomas Hampson and maybe even me. Who knows? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but... All of those artists, including me, they found found it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, help them find. Mm-hmm. So where is that space of, like you say, not thinking about the way that you're walking or moving, and yet after the fact you're able to describe exactly what it was. So doing something naturally, not thinking about the mechanism of that thing happening but then having the technique and the thought that you know you can perfectly describe exactly the minutiae of what your body has done in a certain moment mm, sometimes right i mean th- there's also and this has happened to me a lot in rehearsal process when you're just sort of you're in a scene and you're you know, the director hasn't given you any staging and you're just sort of improvising and you're just sort of living the scene and singing the music and interacting with your colleagues and the other characters. And then you get to the end of the scene and the, and the director says, oh, that was great. Keep that. And you don't know what you did <laughs> because, you know, you're panic. Yeah. Well, you're just you're so in the moment that you weren't taking mental notes of, oh, and this is where I lifted the glass and said to him, you know, it because it is so organic mm. And, and okay, so to teach that and to try and describe the process of getting to that point, you, it's not instantaneous. And, and like I say, it comes through a lot of years of allowing yourself to be spontaneous, practicing spontaneity, and having freedom and, and, and confidence and courage of your convictions. You know, I'm always, whenever I, I see any kind of improv artists, you know, improv comedy or anything like that, I'm in awe of them and because I think I could never just think of the words to say. <laughs> you know, I sing, I say words that are already written down for me. But they are so gifted in creating in the moment. And ultimately, we want to be that way too. Even if something is staged, you know, detailed within an inch of its life I've, I've had directors who say no I really need you to lift your finger two beats earlier I, you know that kind of minutia but it has to appear as if I'm just thinking of it in that moment hmm. everything has to appear as if we are living in the present and that somebody didn't stage it you know for us five weeks ago that's and that's the fun of it as a performer um to find to 
to, to do something that's very, very studied, but make it look spontaneous. <laughs> that's the magic, right? Yeah, for everybody. <laughs> for you sitting in the audience and for us on stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you think back um, to your early years, um, just starting out, um, you know, either in the Young Artist Program in San Francisco or, or beyond that, was there a moment where you know, maybe a, a certain production, a certain run, or a certain performance of a certain production somewhere where all of a sudden sort of everything or most things just clicked in your, and just locked in in a certain way and, and you thought, oh, yes, I'm on to something here. <laughs> well, those moments of, wow, this could actually work, were fueled more by reactions to what I was doing rather than my own feelings. Because I swear that the first 20 years of my singing life were just trying to keep my head above water. I was just (laughs) paddling as hard as I could underneath and trying not to drown. So I wasn't always aware of whether I was, boy, I was really on then. I was just, you know, I was trying to live up to people's expectations of me. Mm. I still am (laughs) to a certain degree. But one of the first moments was getting accepted into the Marilla program. I had just I had just gotten my master's degree from my second master's degree. Uh, first one was at Texas Tech University, and um, then a couple of years later, I got a master's, another master's from Manhattan School of Music. And I had had some good opportunities in Manhattan that sort of started to put me a little bit on the map in in New York. I got to do a great role in our school, you know, opera, and it got written up in the New York Times. So that was a shock and a fabulous thing. And then I got to go to Marilla, and good things started happening there. And back in those days, they had a a sort of competition. The last concert was actually a competition, and they gave prizes in order of a grand prize and then first, second, third, fourth, whatever. And um, and I won the grand prize that summer, which was shocking to everybody and me especially. <laughs> but that was the first kind of moment where I started to feel like somebody thinks I'm I've got something special. I'm not sure what it is, but s- people are starting to buzz a little bit. And then throughout that first year, that the year after I won that, then you know Opera News did a feature of ten young singers to watch. And I was one of them. And then I won the Met competition that year. And things just started bubbling around the time I was 27, 28 years old. Because mm-hmm. I was just, I, I was out of Manhattan school and things were starting, auditioning a lot. And I just, things were falling into place. Um, and like I said, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. I was just doing me. I was just, do, you know, you do you. I was just doing me. And it was going well. So I thought that I was on to, you know, I was I was on this path that hopefully would sweep me along and take it take me with it. And that's sort of what happened. I found the best voice teacher uh whom I still study with, Marlena Mollis in New York. I've been with her over 30 years. It's fantastic. You still study? Oh yes. Oh yes, and it's amazing. I, and I still learn new things every time I see her. Mm. Because you know, I'm in my late 50s now, and certainly for the past for the past 15 years, every day the voice is different. <laughs> you know, a woman in her 40s and 50s has you know a lot to deal with, and uh, and so you know, I I couldn't I don't think I could have made it through without without a great voice teacher to steer me along the way with my ever changing instrument, you mm-hmm. know, because 
it's not like we take it out and put it in a case and right. fold it away. It's it's subject to the vicissitudes of everyday life and body chemistry and what you're going through and what your emotional state is and what you ate for lunch that day and what the air is like and whether it's raining or whether it's not, whether it's cold, whether it's hot. I You know, the voice is, is a very delicate instrument. Yeah. So, uh, yes, my, my teacher has been extremely instrumental all these years. And... Um, but I, I just always trusted her, and I trusted my own musical values. No matter what, in opera, music is first. And that's something that's always sort of been my, my cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, it, it went well. Mm -hmm. And my, my Met debut was not that exciting. I was the second lady in the magic flute. <laughs> 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 but four years later, I did opening night of Dear Rosen Cavalier as Octavian and that maybe that was one of those moments where oh my god this is amazing actually there was a there was a an event the year before that uh, 90 maybe 94 or something like that I was understudying Frederica von Stade as Carabino in the Marriage of Figaro and she had to miss a performance coming up because she had she had her husband was having surgery and she told me before she told the Met. And she said, Susie, I'm going to have to miss this performance in March. And I want to tell you now, this was like three weeks away, <laughs> because I want you to tell your parents so they can fly up from Texas and see you as Carabino because you're going to be great. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so I did tell my parents, and they came up and they watched, and I sang Carabino, the biggest thing I had done on stage to that point, and it was huge. I was in a cast of superstars, and I felt amazing and lifted up, and I felt like I could fly, and I had a great experience. And then the next year, I was asked to do only the one performance of Dear Rosen Cavalier because Anne-Sophie von Otter was doing the whole run, and she couldn't do opening night. So for some reason, they gave me opening night, <laughs> and I got reviews, and I got to stand out there on that stage and sing that part with my heart pounding so hard I could only hear that and not really the music but yeah that was that was that was a big wow this might actually work moment yeah. you know they, they come amazing yeah they come in little in many forms along sure. the way but sure when you listen to um these young artists um here at Los Angeles Opera um how quickly can you identify those magic moments, those moments of potential, those moments of, oh, you know, this this person's going to have a really great career? Um, it's different with each one. Sometimes it's super obvious. And sometimes I think, okay, this can be really great if we fix this, this, and this. And after having done this for a year now, that's sort of where I go first. Mm -hmm. And... I don't like that feeling so much because it. I sit on a lot of juries and, you know, I'm I'm hearing auditions, from time to time, and my ear has become more critical in the past year, and and I don't really like that, but it's it's necessary for my job. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 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 much more difficult now for me to just sit back and go, wow, that's fantastic. I it happens from time to time, but. More often than not, I think, oh, wow, there's something really beautiful in there. Got to fix this. 
because my standard is what I would want to hear on stage at the Met, for instance. It's the house I've spent more time in than any other. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring them up to that level. I mean, everybody has flaws. Everybody has flaws. Luciano even had flaws. We all have flaws, but we want to make the most of our strengths in order to take away from the attention-getting flaws. <laughs> so sometimes, like I say, sometimes you can hear it in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And you, always I know what's special about somebody in 10 seconds. I can tell what's special about them in 10 seconds. That's interesting. And I can't always, you, it takes me a little while longer to sometimes hear the flaws. Yeah. Also, it's because when you're doing master classes a lot, and I do a lot of master classes around the country, you're sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to have anything to say. I'm going to get up there, and I'm going to feel like an idiot because I don't have anything to say because this person. So you start. You have to look for things to correct mm-hmm. so that, you know, you, you, you're worthy of being there, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, man. Something like this, though, versus a master class. I mean, you get to develop relationships oh, and fabulous. long-term. Yeah. I, that's my favorite thing. My favorite thing is, is you know, really bonding with them and, mm-hmm. and sharing, sharing their path with them. You know, and I know, I know when they're going off to do auditions and we work on the audition pieces and I, you know, I'm, I'm their biggest cheerleader. And when I'm working with them, it is full on contact sport. I mean, I'm jumping up and down. I'm cheering. I'm yelling. I'm singing with them. I'm saying, no, 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 don't do that. Or yes, more of that. And I'm, you know, very physical. And, and I, I, I want to be, I want them to know that I'm their biggest cheerleader. I think I'm very empathetic in that I can sort of feel what's happening while they're singing so I can address it and I can feel when they're tentative and I can feel when they're not breathing and I can feel when they're holding back Hmm. and I want to give them the freedom to be able to fly. Can you talk a little bit about the this generation of singers that are in the Young Artist program like some of their some of the strengths of the generation and some of the weaknesses I'm thinking like People coming up now, really, like, we have access to all different kinds of music. And so (laughs) I'm sure that, like, being an omnivore in terms of what kind of music people are exposed to could be a real asset for a young artist, for example. Yes, I think that that they're, in general, more well-rounded than my generation was. Mm -hmm. We were – we didn't have access, you know. I was – I was their age in the 80s. (laughs) You know, I tell them stories about life before the Internet. You know, they find it all very fascinating. But I think the biggest challenge for this generation is exactly that, Mm. is that they have too much at their disposal. They have um, social media which they've all grown up with. And it it frames how they perceive themselves in the world. And not just for singers, but I think for for the vast majority of young people, I think that's a great danger. 
Everything is very externally oriented. You know, how do I look in this selfie? That's, there are magnitudes of YouTube videos about how to take better selfies. Who cares? <laughs> they are, because of this, because of this ability to do anything online and digitally, they are self-promoting, they are self-recording, they are self-managing, and all of those things, I think, detract from the development of artistry. I mean, when I was their age, every ounce of energy I had went into singing better and, and going to theater and exposing myself to the great tradition of the history of our art form and and going to symphony concerts and I'm not saying they don't do these things but it's all we had we 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 didn't have there's also I have a fear and this is for society in general that the tendency your listeners can't see what I'm doing but my head is bent <laughs> over an imaginary phone and my thumbs oh, are working yep. like crazy yep. the tendency to become so insular mm-hmm. has taken I think something from the ability to have interpersonal communications and to feel comfortable with emotional expression because these generations don't have a lot of opportunity you know they'd rather text somebody than have a face-to-face conversation Mm -hmm. by far more than have a telephone conversation nobody calls anymore is that true that's true I mean (laughs) text somebody the spoken word and the written word, and by written I mean with a pen and paper, has disappeared as an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that's a lot of, you know, how can, how can I ask someone to convey to me the subtlety of a crushed dream? in a song or in an aria, the innate subtle sadness and how you look in somebody's eyes who's broken your heart. If there's not that same level of, I don't know, interpersonal expression, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely wrongheaded. No, I think, I I mean, I think you're definitely hitting a, a, a point that is is certainly there in terms of just when you did your demonstration of the thumbs and the phone and <laughs> and your head went down and all of a sudden we're sitting here talking but you the just the body language of that removed you from the conversation mm-hmm. and I, I like I could feel it just across the table yeah. right? it's, it's, it's like yeah. a wall goes up yeah how and many, that's everywhere how many times have you been out to dinner and seen people at a table not talking to each other both on their phones yeah. My wife and I have a rule, no phones at dinner. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, but, you know, I, I've made a hard and fast rule that whenever we have a class, no phones out. Yeah. And um, we, we had a class last, last uh, season with a very, very well-known uh, pianist and coach who was, who was here, and he did a leader class for our, our young artists. And, um, and right before it started... 
they had phones out and you know maybe they were looking up translations to german songs maybe they were <laughs> but i went behind each of them and i said if that phone isn't gone in 15 seconds it's mine <laughs> so i get to be that teacher yes. i get to be that person because i've been in you know i've been in operas where in the zitzprobe which for your listeners who don't know that's that's an orchestra singing rehearsal where the whole orchestra is there it's usually the first time the singers get to work with the orchestra it's not on stage we're all sitting in chairs with our scores on a stand and it's just a musical rehearsal so that everybody can figure out you know what the orchestra is going to sound like here and how I'm going to sing this phrase whatever and it was a it was a big opera and there were big stars in it and the whole young artist program for that opera company not ours we're sitting on the back row with their phones out looking at Facebook during a Zitz Proba. And I thought, guys, you are missing an opportunity here. Mm. And that is, is an example of what the options we didn't have in a Zitz Proba. I would just sit there and watch Placido Domingo sing mm. and think, that's how you do it. Or Mirella Franey, or Marilyn Horn, or Frederica von Stade, or any other number of amazing, brilliant artists who were doing their craft right in front of me. Mm. And all I could do was watch and soak it up and see how their bodies moved and see the, how their faces were expressing. Even though they weren't on stage, even though they weren't in costume, they were in the moment, they were in the music, and it was bringing it out in them. Uh, involuntarily they weren't trying it was just happening and it was breathtaking and those guys were missing that <laughs> but not yours not if i have anything to do with it i'll smack them over the head with it <laughs> just kidding i don't advocate violence <laughs> but uh, i mean how great to have your perspective influencing these singers at the beginning of of their careers and to be able to say look there are moments where you need to be more than 100 percent in the moment yeah and um you know i i laugh and call myself a dinosaur but that's <laughs> as christopher kelsch the the head of this opera company said to me when uh when i was hired he said you are someone who has always upheld very great integrity in your career and very great musical values and the young singers today don't encounter enough of that so i feel like if nothing else i can come in and be that hmm. you know impart those kinds of because i'm very passionate about it you may not have noticed but i'm very <laughs> very passionate about my values and and how how important a role it is to you know we're just vessels it's not about us it's about what Mozart had to say and his librettist de Ponte and what Wagner had to say and what Verdi had to say and what Jake Heggie has to say now, very prolific current composer, what Matthew O'Coyne has to say now in his pieces, and Nick Muley and everybody who provides something for us to interpret deserves to have the full measure of what we can bring to it in order to bring it to life.
mezzo-soprano Susan Graham is the artistic advisor for the Domingo Colburnstein Young Artist Program at LA Opera. She also will appear later this season in LA Opera's production of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel as The Witch. And that's actually a role debut for Graham. She and I will talk about that on a future edition of this podcast. For more information on the Domingo Colburnstein Young Artist Program and to learn more about each of the 11 current young artists, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.